Welcome to the Signal Fire series, a limited series of conversations just as the fire can be set as a signal that can be seen from a distance for others to find their way, so too can our stories be a beacon for those who need a little inspiration to get unstuck or a little courage to take a different path. Today we're talking writing, yoga, and diversity and inclusion. I am Keshni Washington and I'm a writer. Denise Robinson is my guest today. She's a lawyer who has a passion for diversity and inclusion, yoga and mindfulness, and has gone on a different route and founded her own company called The Still Center, where she helps lawyers and other professionals bring their best to all aspects of their lives and prepares organizations to put people first. Welcome, Denise. Thank you, Keshni. Such a pleasure and privilege to be here. Thank you. Did I make it sound like you teach yoga to lawyers? But you're actually a diversity and inclusion advocate as well, right? Right. <laughs> so I do occasionally teach yoga to lawyers. I will say that. <laughs> but most of my day job, if you will, as a consultant is doing diversity and inclusion work. I integrate aspects of mindfulness into that. And then I also teach yoga. And that has primarily been something that I do. I call it my advocation. So I've done that different frequencies at different periods for the last 10 years. The diversity and inclusion work and then integrating the mindfulness work, I've been doing that for, for the last 15 years. That's my vocation. There is so much to unpack there. I want to <laughs> rewind it to the beginning. When we look back, we can see all the logical connections in our journey that led us to where we are now. But when we're in the uncertain middle or the beginning or veering off a well-trodden path, it can be pretty scary. Can you take mm -hmm. us back to a time when you thought, I am a lawyer? And when did that start to change? I never have and I still don't identify as a lawyer. Um, even when I was practicing law, I never had my identity attached to that particular work. And that's pretty unusual for lawyers. I still work with lawyers primarily in my consulting practice. I find that that's a pretty consistent thread. If you ask them, who are they? They would say, I'm a lawyer first. And mm -hmm. I never identified in that way. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that I did not have a positive experience experience in law school. It was a matter of, okay, I've started this law school thing. And so I'm going to finish it because I'm a pretty relentless type of person <laughs> with some exceptions. Like I have some amazing friends that I've gained from that experience. I also have a couple of amazing professors, one in particular, who's very famous. We could talk about that if you want to down the road. <laughs> oh, we will. With those caveats, and th those are important ones because I did form some important relationships while I was in law school people that I'm still connected to. And if a classmate of mine introduced me to my husband, you know, mm -hmm. I have the school to thank for a lot of things in my personal life for sure. But the actual experience of law school and then going into the practice of law, I just did not have a, a strong connection. However, had law school loans. Law school is very expensive and I do not come from money. I came out of law school with about $80,000 of loans, student debt. Most law
law firms pay very well. And so I went that route because it was quote unquote easy. I got a job at a law firm in my home state of Ohio. After about two and a half years of practice, I got a job at Georgetown Law, very different kind of work. I did admissions for Georgetown University Law Center. And so that moved me to DC, which has always kind of felt like home to me. My godmother has lived here for 30 years. I used to visit a lot and I moved here 15 years ago and it was definitely an exit ramp. And when I got that job, I felt so much relief. Mind you, I took a huge pay cut, more than 50% to move to a bigger city, which is more expensive. From a financial standpoint, it probably did not make a ton of sense, but it made all the sense in the world for me. Trying to do work uh, was more meaningful, more consistent with who I was. That's amazing. I know we all can't just easily just switch into something that we really want to do after we've invested all this time and effort and money and we have these responsibilities that come with, for example, student loans. If there's something that we're searching for, there is a way to take practical steps and make that happen is what I hear you saying. That even though you've got all this responsibility, you can factor that in and still move slowly towards something that is more fulfilling for you. When did you first get interested in yoga and mindfulness? What did that bring to your life? It actually goes way back. My mom practiced yoga, started practicing yoga back in around 1980 in Dayton, Ohio, which is where I'm originally from. I'm African-American. We were on the side of town that was mostly African-American. There was a lot of racial divide where I'm from. And by the way, her yoga teacher was also African-American. And I say all of that because Dayton, Ohio, being African-American, being in a very working class city, it's highly unusual, probably still is, for those demographics to also include yoga practitioner or teacher at that time in particular. That's, you know, who I was born to. And then my dad was a physical education teacher and a track coach. And for me, it just seemed very normal until many, many years later, 20 years or so later. So I would go with her to practice yoga sometimes when I was a little girl. Basically up until I started spending more time with my dad when I became a a track athlete. And so for a good seven or eight years, I was practicing with my mom, not every day, but a lot. It wasn't until I became an adult, yoga had gotten popular in the West Mm -hmm. (laughs) and yoga studios were sprouting up everywhere. The yoga studio that I went to with my mom was in the teacher's basement of her house. I can still call up the smell, basically aromatherapy. I I would not have known that then, but that's what, you know, what she was doing. But yeah, as an adult, it became commercial. And I don't know that this is true statistically, but still most yogis don't look like you or me, Keshni, even though. I would tend to agree, unfortunately. (laughs) Right? (laughs) You know, and even though, right, the practice is from India and South Asia, like it's not something that started here. But nevertheless, I came back to yoga as an adult because I was stressed out working in a law firm. So this is actually when I left my first law firm, I went to work for Georgetown Law and then I went to work for Georgetown as as an admissions officer in their undergraduate admissions office doing mostly multicultural recruitment of African-American students primarily. And then I went back into a law firm to do diversity and inclusion work full time. And that trajectory kind of took some time because there really were no full-time diversity professionals in law firms 
when I graduated from law school. So law firms are very late to the diversity and inclusion in terms of formalizing those efforts. So anyway, when I was back in the firm, it was stressful. You're really pushing up against a lot of resistance. There are some people who really want diversity and inclusion, absolutely. But then there are a lot of people who prefer the status quo. I, yeah, I returned to yoga and really meditation first. I like to move, right? And so I needed something to add to the meditation to deal with the stress. I found so much more in the practice of yoga, not stuff that I was even looking for, but I really got a lot more out of it than I even expected to. And so I went to yoga teacher training over a number of years, actually, while I was still working full time by this point, but I was still doing my yoga teacher training. I was still teaching while doing my training. Eventually, people who I worked with would start to ask me things like, well, can you show me some yoga things that I could do in my office without rolling out a mat? Ah. <laughs> and I'm like, Sure. <laughs> so let me figure out some chair yoga things but then it started to move into well what can we do in terms of educating people on the fact that yoga is not just postures it's not just asana right so there's yeah. eight limbs and meditation is one of those limbs I basically started bringing that to my colleagues if asked and then eventually left and I decided, why am I doing this on request only? Why am I not just doing this like intentionally combine them? Diversity and inclusion and mindfulness or diversity, inclusion and wellness. It really all goes together because just like I'm stressed out, some of the stress is work related, but a lot of it is just being a black woman in these contexts where that are not built for people like me. If we're going to do diversity and inclusion more effectively, we have got to give resources to people who are suffering the way that I've felt that I was in a corporate setting, but then also to the people who are frankly causing the suffering. <laughs> so what can I bring intentionally into my consulting practice to essentially help both groups, like majority folks, but then also underrepresented individuals? And so much good stuff in there as always. Start with the last thing you said, which is, okay. <laughs> reminds me about something that my diva said about being free in a way that sets my own jailers free as well. It's something oh. very powerful that he said. <laughs> and it speaks oh, to exactly that. what you just said. Air quotes on jailers. <laughs> yeah, but it is. I mean, that is, oh, that's so powerful. I'm now going to use that because I've never heard that particular. I might be paraphrasing a little bit. No he worries. said it better than Close I enough. remember. <laughs> that's quite a powerful way to live and quite a powerful Thank way you. to organically bring in so many different interests and influences, but that actually all build and serve each other. <laughs> I also take from that that your mom was a pretty cool person, isn't she? Oh my goodness. <laughs> she is. She is. My father is now deceased, but I always say I just, I really did hit the jackpot with parents. Just really understanding child development and really living their lives consistent with their values was just the best example that I could have. So even though my mother is amazed, frankly, that I have not had, say, like a consistent job for the almost 20 years now that I've been out of law school and all that, because in her generation, you just, you basically work for the same employer for 30, 40 yeah. years and then retire all of that. So, so it's different, right, to her. Yeah. But at the same time, she recognizes that she raised me to be exactly as I am now, right? Like 
following my passions and following what I think is my purpose on earth. I want to virtually high five her. <laughs> she, she sounds like a cool <laughs> person and, and you're a pretty cool person. That's why we're friends. Oh, <laughs> and, thank uh, you. As and, are you, my friend. <laughs> I think it's so interesting that what you're actually talking about is alignment. You can be doing yes. many different things that seem disparate. But yes, if it's many different things that are actually aligned with who you are, like your parents, yes. that should count a lot towards discovering a more fulfilling or living a more fulfilling life every day. Try to listen to that sense of alignment. Yes. That's what the practice of yoga, in my humble, humble, humble opinion, because I do not profess to know all that there is to know about the practice, but I do think the poses are there, the asana practice is there to, to teach you to do that in other areas of your life, to keep ever tweaking the alignment, constantly seeking the equanimity, to breathe, to breathe <laughs> absolutely <laughs> through all of it. Yes. When our tendency is hold our <laughs> breath, when yoga teachers say woo-woo things, and I say it too, things like, okay, so take this <laughs> off the mat and <laughs> bring it into your life. That is what we mean. <laughs> That's the metaphor. I've been practicing for many years, but I still can't do the fancy moves. Right, neither. I can feel the difference that it makes shifting my attention basically from my mind to my hand makes a big difference to me whether I can hold the posture or the fancy headstand or not it makes a difference by shifting your attention it always makes me laugh though when the yoga teacher says and remember to breathe and I was and I'm like oh yeah I I wasn't (laughs) breathing until she said that I was holding my breath I used to have this teacher when I was in primary school or elementary school as you you would say here and she was an English teacher, Mrs. K. Pillay. She had so much faith in my writing ability, and I must have been like 10 years old. Mm, it was just not something I considered, or anybody would allow me to consider at that time as a career. I loved writing class. She really used to encourage me, be excited about my work, even though I was only able to follow up on that many years later after going through the corporate hamster <laughs> cycle. She must have laid a foundation for those seeds inside me. Yes, absolutely. So we really need yes. to be grateful to those people who like water these kinds of seeds in children mm. because they're really helping us keep them alive, <laughs> even if yes. we only are able to germinate them like later on in life. It's just absolutely I'm just so grateful to people like that. That's why I applaud your mom. And my Aww, English teacher, Mr. Thank you. Kalei, there is a phrase that I love as well about writing that says, every time you sit down to write, you have to first take a machete or a bush knife, as we call it in Dove. <laughs> nice. <laughs> we call it I a love bush it. knife. <laughs> every culture has that. <laughs> You sit down as writing, you take a machete and you have to, they called it hacking through the jungle of self-doubt. Before you make this clearing, before we can create a space, yes. we can actually be creative. And this yes. happens every single time you sit down to write. And I've heard these mm-hmm. writers with several published books say that they go through the same thing. Every time they sit down, they have all this self-doubt that we put us in a little bit of a cage and we have to kind of fight our way out of it before we can allow ourselves to be creative. Yes. I was wondering, what was one of your most challenging moments that looking back now, you can see that it was pivotal? Yeah, this gets to what 
ultimately made me switch to my career as a consultant, as a self-employed person. My daughter was born at 28 weeks gestation. A normal pregnancy is 40 weeks. And so she was born 12 weeks early, three months basically early. Completely unexpected. I had some issues in my pregnancy, but nothing that would have predicted uh, what ultimately happened. And so I had an emergency C-section. I'd never been in the hospital before other, you know, than to visit people who were in the hospital, but never myself for that moment. I hemorrhaged a lot. So I almost lost my life in the process. And then my daughter, because of her low birth weight, and she was less than two pounds, less than a thousand grams, almost lost her life as a result of it. And she was in the hospital for quite a while, two and a half months after that. Basically, everything changed. And one of the most fundamental changes is how I work. And so up until that point, even though I've made decisions in the way of trying to do purposeful work or meaningful work, um, I was still typically operating within large institutions. I tried to work within the system, essentially. When I had her, and then once she finally came home, I did not have a ton of leave. And then we have all sorts of issues within the states around not really supporting paid leave unless the goodness of your employer, <laughs> you yeah. have enough leave, it's left up to the private sector really to do that. I did go back to work after taking some unpaid leave, quite a bit of unpaid leave, but I pretty much knew that I was not going to be able to stay with any employer. It had nothing to do with specifically with the employer I was with at the time. It was really working for anyone when my daughter had a lot of medical challenges still ahead of her, I needed to be present with her. And I did continue to work. So I worked for another eight months or so, and then became a consultant after that, where I had a ton more control over my schedule, was making a lot less money, however. (laughs) So once again, now this time with a mortgage and a husband and a child, major challenge, but it was essential to change the way I was working to try to work now from the outside in to create change in the organizations that are now my clients. So it was clearly pivotal, clearly a challenging moment. I really feel like in many ways that experience saved me. It just would have taken all the energy out of me, I think, eventually to stay inside of an organization. That's also an incredible tale where we were just talking about earlier, we don't have the responsibilities as much so we can sort of take them into account and make a pivot. But this is where having a major responsibility for another human being. Yes, right. The right choice was to to leave more of the conventional style of employment and create your own path and create your own way of Mm -hmm. living and having a career that have more freedom. So you could take better care of this big responsibility in your life. Many different paths to many different um, paths to finding this kind of freedom in your life where you make your own career. Absolutely. And it's not easy. I definitely don't want to leave the impression that it's really is not easy. There are adjustments that have to be made to one's sort of standard of living 
along with those choices if they do have an impact financially and not everybody will have the same impact it just depends on your situation my husband and i both have multiple loans that we're still paying off so <laughs> there you go but it's, it's priorities there you go and sometimes the priorities again align i think it's a pretty powerful thing to have out there as well other people who might be struggling with these choices that you can make mm -hmm. it work there's many different ways today i read this post from a friend of mine who's originally from zimbabwe i met her in australia as an exchange student oh, wow. and she still lives in australia so she was there in uni as they call it in australia yeah. and she stayed there and she wrote in this instagram post today i always have options uh -huh. i always have options and i thought that's my life's philosophy <laughs> <laughs> that I always awesome. have options. So I have to share the story of how we met with one of those <laughs> corporate socializing mandatory <laughs> evenings. And somehow we got to talking and we somehow. quickly discovered we had like common interests in like social justice. And we spent yep. like several hours in our own little bubble, I think, that several hours talking and sort of becoming so true. best friends or something. <laughs> and, and I totally fangled over the fact that Barack Obama was your law professor in Chicago. <laughs> I refer to you as Denise, who was taught by Barack Obama. <laughs> I have to ask, what was it like being in his class pre-presidency? Yes, he was a politician in the state of Illinois when I had him as a professor, certainly getting into his political career, but who would have known, right, that yeah. he was going to run for president and win twice. <laughs> so he is the only professor that I ever mentioned to any of my friends and family. So they knew his name when he got on the national stage. They were like, is this the same? <laughs> No, you are not the only one, trust me. And one my best friend saw him at Georgia Brown's restaurant, which is oh, yes. downtown DC. Yes. This is in I think he was still a senator at the time, so he didn't, you know, didn't have all the secret service and stuff around him. But she saw him in the restaurant and she's very gregarious, very much like you, Teshni. And she goes up to him I and says, <laughs> Hello. <laughs> well, you succeed. You succeed. <laughs> So she says, hello, Senator Obama. Um, I just have to come up and say how much I admire you. And also, my best friend was one of your students in, <laughs> at the University of Chicago. And my best friend is also African-American. And so he says, you know, well, what is her name? And my friend told her, Denise Robinson. He said, oh, yeah, I remember Denise. This <laughs> now, who knows? He may not remember me, but what I will say is that there were so few black students at mm -hmm. University of Chicago. The year ahead of me, there was only one actually who enrolled. They admitted more, but there was only one black student in the class ahead of me. Very few of us. And so it is possible. And then also the fact that I shared his wife's maiden name, <laughs> I think helps a little bit. Michelle Robinson, you know, so it's like... <laughs> this to Denise who was taught by Barack Obama who actually remembers who Denise is. <laughs> yes, maybe. <laughs> at least in there and the man is a politician, right? So like he may not. But at least, you know, at that time maybe he did, but he yeah. certainly would not today, right? But yeah. having him as a professor was extraordinary. I took voting rights from him, which I think every day mm -hmm. I think about that class and the, a lot of it is very much an issue right now and then i took a race and law which uh, both of these classes are constitutional law classes but they're smaller seminars and so we got to spend quite a bit of time going in depth 
into issues. We had students from all over the political spectrum in those classes because he was so good at listening, frankly, and really valued our input. That was such, unfortunately, a rare experience among law professors in that process. It's just not the way that law school is sort of, that's not the pedagogy. I appreciated that, and I saw the uniqueness in that even back then. I'm even more impressed now. (laughs) So we haven't talked about diversity work. What would you like people to know about diversity work or misconceptions that you have encountered around it? Here's your chance to school us. Oh boy, there's so many misconceptions. I think the, the biggest one that I hope I will see just float away at some point, although it probably won't float away, it'll have to be pressure <laughs> to push it away, is this idea that people of color, that people from underrepresented groups in general are looking for handouts or that we are not qualified. I still mm. hear, fortunately not very many of my clients, but I do hear it sort of in the space in the corporate space, things like, well, we can't find any qualified minority candidates for X, Y, and Z positions. So that's why we're struggling so much to have more diversity. So this, this idea that you can't be both qualified or competent and be a person from underrepresented background is just infuriating, <laughs> frankly. When you look at the history of this country and frankly, most of the world, one can understand very quickly how we got to that place. Border meetings where I put that said as well in South Africa. Yes, it's the same thread, right? Because what underpins systems of apartheid or what I would argue is a form was a form of apartheid here in the states between say, you know, the emancipation or the reconstruction amendments and then the civil rights act, so about 100 years. Yeah. Exactly, you know, Jim Crow laws, etc, all of that. What underpins it is this idea of one group is superior, the other is inferior, right? And that is something that we have to be taught. But then eventually it just becomes part of the, the culture. It's just part of what we, what we believe, including about ourselves. That's what's so insidious <laughs> about it. So we have to be untaught. Hopefully all of us have to be untaught, but certainly those of us who are in the, the group that is um, considered to be inferior. And so that's a lot to unpack, even if you change the laws, even though apartheid is no longer, you know, a legal system in South Africa, until you get rid of the cultural understanding or belief, incorrect belief about, you know, how people are ranked, you're going to see all of these, the fruits basically of those cultural beliefs that are completely socially constructed. The thing that I see as my work in doing diversity and inclusion that isn't maybe, certainly is not always on display because typically I'm going in to do training programs on how do we get rid of implicit bias or how do we grow cultural competency, et cetera. Uh But really beneath all of that is helping people to understand that we live in an abundant world, if we can keep it, (laughs) right? I can't remember who said it, but it's like, you know, I think it's Benjamin Franklin or something. It's like, we have a democracy if we can keep it, something to that effect. We have enough for everyone. When we have diversity and inclusion efforts in the workplace, this is not about oh, you're trying to take my space away so that you could put this, you know, this Black person in this space or this woman into this space or this gay person. That comes from a scarcity mindset. There's only a little bit and I must have it all. 
And because I'm part of the group that has had or has taken for centuries, I'm therefore entitled to it. And so any change that comes along to me feels like a loss. I'm you know, I'm speaking from the standpoint of those who are overrepresented because I've seen how this plays out in clients who are majority minority, for example, and we could start to bring some of those ideals even into those institutions about who is deserving and who is not, who's entitled to have it all and then who is not. We all have implicit biases. Every single yes, one. we all do. We absolutely do. And when we have a little bit of power, if we believe that there's only a little bit, then we will behave in ways that will always basically persecute others because we're trying to, we're trying to protect ourselves. Overcoming that, that scarcity belief, which to me is a myth, <laughs> I'll be working forever to do that. <laughs> I think we all will, but it's worth it. I think that's a pretty great explanation and pretty valuable work there or meaningful work where we all, no matter what the shade of our skin color is, have biases that we may or may not be aware of. That's what implicit biases mean. We sometimes yes. aren't even really aware of it. So it's about understanding and awareness of our own limiting self-beliefs that yeah. could be driving some of the things we do or say or the decisions we make or how we act yes. Yes. without even us realizing it, which is something for me personally, is a lifelong mission. I want to uncover those things that are limiting me that I don't even realize are limiting me. Combining that with this idea of abundance and scarcity, I think that's pretty powerful too, where we've got to think of that as we've all got to reorientate ourselves to an abundance mindset. And that's not yeah. like woo-woo or whatever. Like right. you know, it's, it's <laughs> Anytime you feel yourself contracting, yes. that's usually fear. Fear yes. And anytime you feel it, you feel your heart squeeze up or you're, you're holding your breath about something. Mm -hmm. That is when you are feeling, literally feeling scarcity. So if yes. we actually remind ourselves to breathe and check ourselves, to try to figure out, okay, what was going on in my mind there that led me to scrunch up like that? Inside, yes. We can yes. probably start to be more aware and figure out some of those things ourselves. And then we have teachers like you. You schooled us pretty well there, actually, in those few minutes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm really glad I, I got to meet you in that pocket that you were Me too. Ships were passing in the night at the same employer. Thank you for your time today. And thank you for everything that you shared so openly and honestly. Thank you. <laughs> so much for being an open book and that's the point of these conversations right. on the yes. signal fire series oh thank you so much Kashni. this was an just again an honor to be a part of this it, it's all an offering to help others so thank you there's so much value in our stories and i am sure that there's always somebody out there waiting to hear the exact stories putting out or needing to hear this exact story that we have the courage to put out there. So that's my belief. I agree. You've been listening to Keshni Washington and Denise Robinson on the Signal Fire series podcast. Find more information and blogs on www.keshniwashington.com. Thank you.